Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory, which is a podcast part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm going to be talking about a new book, What Matters? Talking Value in Australian Culture, with two of the authors, Julian Mayrick and Tully Barnett. Uh, Both of them are from Flinders University over in Australia, and they work at Laboratory Adelaide uh, on this uh, The Value of Culture project. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dave. Thanks. Um, this is a, a sort of really well-timed book uh, for lots of different reasons. Obviously, there's the Australian context, but also this speaks to a, a really clear uh, global debate that's going on across um, Europe, United States, lots of different places actually about this problem or this question about the value of culture. And I wonder if you could set the scene by saying a little bit about what the kind of specific politics of data collection are over in Australia, what the sort of um, I guess, Australian situation is that's given rise to the project in the book. Yeah. Um, so Aus- Australia is not, not unique in its political organisation, but, but it is kind of quite peculiar. We've got three very active levels of government. Um, we're, a, we're a federated state, so state governments have quite a lot of say in particular areas, in culture, particularly in the area of infrastructure investment. We've got a federal government that runs um, a national arts agency and cognate agencies in film and television. And we've also got very active local governments. And all of them collect data in different ways um, and for different purposes. Um, We have uh, an Australian Bureau of Statistics that up until 2014 used to collect um, uh, cultural data, recreation and cultural data, but that was closed down by the federal government. And we have something called the Cultural Minister's Council, which is a um, uh, a peak body for all the state ministries who come together to pool their data um, on a regular basis. So there's something called the Cultural Minister's Statistical Working Group. It doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. uh, but they are one of the major data gatherers um, for, for, for culture in Australia. So all of these agencies have slightly different agendas, um, and sometimes they cooperate and sometimes they abrade. Australia is a very large country. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a five- to six-hour flight to, to fly from one coast to another. Um, so that means that when we talk about things like Australian culture or even just Australian theatre, we're probably talking about a very small fraction of it that we're actually seeing, and the rest of it we're only hearing about or it has to be taken on trust. So those are very kind of particular circumstances, even though in many other respects um, Australia is a typical Western nation. Yeah, that, that sort of typicalness is one of the things that sets um, the book as being really useful in a global context. And I guess this is about the broader set of questions that the book begins with, which is sort of a critique, I suppose, or at least a series of challenges about how governments value culture, not you know just in terms of that Australian system, but, but more generally. And I wonder if you, you could give me a, a sort of a flavour of uh, what the kind of current problems are with, with how governments value culture. 
Well, what we were seeing when we um, started working on our project was that um, arts organisations weren't able to talk about the, the reasons why they were doing what they were doing. They weren't able to talk about the things that were important to them and were only able to report their value in a very narrow register of terms, usually mostly economic um, and some you know, demographic data. And that that was a bit, big problem for these arts organisations. So that's one of the major problems that's going on. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> I suppose it presented, Dave, as a sort of methodological problem for us in the first instance. I remember we spent a kind of a year, maybe even two years, kind of basically just trying to align quantitative and qualitative methods within the kind of the policy process uh, as we then saw it. But towards the end of... Um, of that period, um, both both events in the real world, which we talk about in the book, some of the things that happened in Australia at that time, and also the conversations um, within us as a research team, because there's a, four of us in the core group and about seven of us in the broader group, um, started to push the problem of value as we saw it out of the purely methodological realm and into a much more explicitly political realm. And that was, that was a challenge for us. We didn't go looking for that. Um, we didn't expect it but it sort of kicked us in the teeth at a certain point. And we then spent three years trying to come to terms with that. That, that um, problem of value, that, that phrase is, is especially useful here, actually. It'd be quite good to know a little bit about what we're actually talking about when we, when we talk about value, because obviously this is going to be crucial to, yeah. to the rest of the book. And I, and I wonder if you could give me a, a sort of, if not a dictionary definition, but a sense of maybe the contours of the debate around the meaning of this term and, and, and how it interrelates with, as you've mentioned, the kind of you know practices of data collection, statistics, but also the politics as well. Yes. Well, the politics is crucial, I think. I mean, these terms, <clears throat> the term of culture and the term of value, um, they have a history, they have a life, you know, they kind of get around um, over time, and people use them in different ways. And so you can, of course, go to the Oxford English Dictionary, or you can go to M. Williams keywords, and you can kind of take a definition from those books. But really, what matters is how they circulate and how people use them. Um, and when we, again, when we began, because and I, I use that phrase, because for us, this is very much a journey of discovery, I think. We assumed that in looking at the problem of culture's value, the problem was culture, <laughs> that, that, that it was difficult, that it was kind of a bit kind of intangible, that it was hard to talk about and hard to define. And as we went on, we became increasingly, we came increasingly to believe that actually the problem term was value and that what had happened was that the idea of value, the society's idea of value, had been constricting over a period of time, probably over a matter of centuries, and losing its broader philosophical and religious connotation and becoming and coming to represent increasingly one narrow register, which was monetary value. Um, and that, of course, is the story of economics. But it's also the story of the triumph of economics and the triumph of a certain kind of economics. Um, so that what you have is perhaps a uh, an unfortunate or at least a difficult alliance between a word like culture, which is increasingly used to refer to a very wide range of situations, and value, which is used to really refer to just one thing, which is price or cost. So you put those two things together and it makes the problem of culture's value exceedingly difficult to sort of talk about in a meaningful way. When I started working on this project, I used to say that this that my you know my job was to research 
uh, culture's value. That's culture as in art and value as in worth, um, not benef- not values, not principles. And it very clearly became, you know, apparent to us that um, that this was just not a useful way of d- dividing these kinds of concepts. And in fact, part of the problem that we're in is that we do not understand what value means anymore and it has been co-opted by you know uh, corporations um, so so much as to render those terms completely meaningless now so what we have to do is kind of take back the whole notion of value to make it more meaningful for the kinds of things we want to do and so we're working on this problem from the from the area of you know arts and culture but this is actually a broader social problem every domain is going to have to grapple with this problem Mm. Yeah, we've had some interesting conversations with people, particularly environmentalists um, and people working in the health area who who are grappling with with very, very similar um, situations. One way of making this really kind of concrete, um, both the sort of, you know, the, the tensions you've been outlining and actually maybe, you know, that kind of sense of how other domains are going to have to grapple with this is with the story of Patrick White. And in the second chapter of the book, you you sort of lay out, um, I guess, a set of numeric tools for thinking about his work, whilst at the same time really kind of asserting the need to think about context, uh, to think about narrative, you you know, to have a much broader view um, of of his importance. So, yeah, I mean, what's the story of Patrick White? Yes. Well, it's an interesting story. So Patrick White um, is a famous novelist. Um, He's the only Australian uh, fiction writer to have won the Nobel Prize, which he did in 1973, I think. Um, And he's also a playwright. Um, And the interesting thing about Patrick White as a playwright is that he's now part of the canon. His four or five plays are uh, regularly produced and they're seen as absolutely key both to the Australian voice and to Australian culture. But back in the 60s, when he was first doing uh, doing those plays, people hated him and they actively hated him. Um, and the critics hated him and people would write letters in saying how much they hated him and they hated his plays. So it, it's an interesting parable for the book because it shows something about not just the instability of value, but these these turnarounds that can happen um, uh, um, in terms of how something, in this case a kind of an artwork, can be... Um, uh, sort of really repudiated and rejected in one year and then 15 years later seen as the acne of a particular kind of artistic practice. Um, and we explore that, I, you know, we use some sort of a little bit of quantitative data in the, uh, in the novel, in the, in the book, but, but we basically show that, that the only way that you can actually understand those figures is by coming up with a narrative interpretation of them. And that there are a few available. Um, one is that, um, you know, uh, people just started liking the play spontaneously. Uh, another is that artists found a way of actually staging them successfully. And then a third is that there was actually a change in the country itself and that a, a new climate of reception made things that were unacceptable in the 1960s acceptable in the 1970s. And I think that's a very salutary kind of lesson for value because it shows that it's not a kind of prize day rosette. You don't just award it once and for all. It's a, it's an ongoing conversation which is subject to revision and to different kind of stakeholder input, to use that rather limp phrase. And we use this concept, we use this to think about um, maybe the concept of longitudinal value. That is that 
that value operates in arts and culture on a different kind of time scale than it operates in, you know, in other kinds of um, realms. So, for example, you know, it doesn't fit, the, the Patrick White story shows that arts and culture and its value doesn't fit on a one-year annual report. That value can't have its journey in something that is reportable in these kinds of metrics and reporting frameworks in which we're always asking it to demonstrate its value. And it doesn't fit in a three-year political cycle. It has to have a longer time scale in order to be able to demonstrate that value over time. I mean, obviously the discussion of metrics um, as well as, you know, that kind of sense of how things change over time and the need to narrate things is maybe in opposition to how much of culture is actually, I suppose, delivered, consumed, engaged with now uh, because of the rise of platforms and, and the digital. And, and it struck me that um, later on in the book, there's a, you know, a sort of um, counterpoint to the story of Patrick White, which is the discussion of platforms and, and, you know, the kind of hidden role of platforms in, in shaping um, how we value what we value. Um, and it'd be good to hear about, um, I guess, the kind of the importance of the platform, both in terms of what it does uh, and maybe how we might need to, you know, uh, challenge or, or resist it. Well, firstly, it's important to say that we don't really know yet, right? A lot of the arts and culture that we're developing inside and with and in between platforms is yet to feel the full effect of that new delivery mode or the new frames for understanding it. So um, we don't really know. It's new. But um, there are some ways that we can start to think about the effects of that. And one of those that that, that I think is a, is a useful um, you know, allegory for it is to think about um, the impact of metadata on uh you know on determining the content of arts and culture what it's what it's about so i tell the story about how i used to work at oslit the australian literature resource which is a database of everything ever written in australia by australians or about australia and um it you know just collects everything over time and so when, when I was working there, it was my job to subject content index poems. That is, I would take a book of new poems and I would enter its, all its details into the database so that somebody could find it if they needed to. And so that is, you know, easy stuff like titles, publication details, page numbers, etc. And then I would have to in, index the poems. So again, title of the poem author of the poem, first line, easy stuff. But then I would have to come to the subject contents and I would have to index what it was about. And this was an agonising process for someone who was then doing a literary studies PhD. I would agonise over the contents. What is it about? What does it mean? What is the author intending in this? And it would take me so long to do this indexing that I thought I was going to be fired. And then as I went over time, I just got faster and faster and faster. And then one day I realised that the reason I was faster had nothing to do with skill it was all because I was outsourcing interpretation to the metadata inside the database right I was I was no longer acting in my own kind of interpretory way or I was doing it in a on a very surface level and using the contents of the database to help me understand this poem and I thought we've got this the wrong way and that is something that is happening across all kinds of metadata. Metadata is political. Algorithms are political. We think, just like metrics, we think that they're neutral. We think that numbers tell a standard story that is empirical and evidenced and in time perfectly 
staying the way it is for all time. But it's not. It is, metadata is political and we have to come to grips with that and the effects of algorithms and platforms on arts and culture and it's and the stories of value that we can tell there if we're going to understand what is going to be occurring around arts and culture in this digitised space. Yeah, I mean, they, they shape essentially, you know, the, the publicness of culture, whether, you know, it's in kind of private context of, you know, watching Netflix or something like that, or actually in terms of, you know, how we think about um, what a bestseller is or, you know, who should be selected for, for awards and stuff like this. And and this kind of publicness, I think, obviously, you know, it's it, it's present um, in the, the struggle over, you know, Patrick White's um, status um, in Australia, but it's also present uh, with things like arts festivals. I know you mentioned uh, arts organisations kind of, you know, not having the language or, you know, not feeling like they could express what it was that they do um, in a way that made sense in kind of policy terms. And, yeah. uh, and this concept of public value is, is really, you know, kind of crucial to, to thinking about that. So I wonder if you could like lay out this idea about public value and, and then, you know, you use the example of the Adelaide uh, Festival of Ideas as well. Yeah, yeah. well, we can have a go. Um, I think that the concept of public value, like the concept of value itself, is not for one stakeholder to define. So you, you can probably go to... Uh, an economics textbook and get a definition of what um, that discipline considers public value to be. Um, But in terms of the book and in terms of our own research, we tend to see it in broader terms um, as something that is defined by the public and for the public. Um, And we we don't have Robert Fidian with us, who is um, our co-author and also one of the founder members of the Adelaide Festival of Ideas that we um, talk about in the book. Um, but key <clears throat> key or crucial to that event is seeing the people who attend it, both the people who are speaking, the people who listen to um, those who are speaking as citizens rather than consumers. So the public value is something that is created by creating publics themselves. Um, uh, and, and that transcends a kind of market language, which um, uh, is the kind of the competing language, if you like, um, for deciding um, h- how these events are to be understood. Um, and ideas and conversation and dialogue, the sorts of things that are generated by the Adelaide Festival of, the, of, of Ideas, are not, they're not products. Um, they're not consumed in that sense. Um, they are um, a foundational dialogue that underpins the operation of democracy itself. And, and we don't say so much about this explicitly in the book, but it sort of sits there kind of under the surface that arts and culture is, is not just about kind of ballet and, you know, a few things that are in kind of glory boxes locked up with high ticket prices. It, it, it sits under everything that we do and is necessary to the operation of a successful democracy. So some of the things that we're talking about in terms of the public value of culture are actually key to the public value of democracy per se. But we've lost the language to talk about any other kind of value other than, you know, than, than um, economic value or, or, the, or the value of, you know, personal rating of, a, of an arts experience, you know, like or dislike. And we don't have, you know, we used to have the term intrinsic value, but it's so 
loaded now that it's not available to us as an unfettered concept. And what that means is that we're only left with instrumental value. So the notion of public value might be a way of, you know, getting out of this out of this dilemma, this dead end that we're mm. at with mm. instrumental value. And escaping from the from the thumbs up, thumbs down, you know, from from thinking that things are only of value if you like them. Um, and that's why um, perhaps the Patrick White parable is so important because people really didn't like him. Um, and the AFOI frequently kind of books people who are controversial, who have dissenting views. So that you, it, it's not true that, that, that the only thing that you can take value from is, is something that you immediately kind of prefer that fits your kind of indifference curve. Um, value operates in a much more complicated way and it's capturing that complication that, that is the real problem at the moment. Have you got advice in terms of um, how to do this then, how to express this? I mean, one of the things you do later in the book is is kind of give a guide to uh, to writing about value. And, and I wonder actually, uh, you know, what would be sort of practical tips maybe in terms of um, moving beyond, as you say, thumbs up and, and thumbs down and kind of um, narrating value? So, I mean, we have, I think, We've got two things to contribute to the debate, as it stands. One of them is kind of quite polemical, and one of them is very practical. So I think the polemical um, kind of contribution is that we think the language of evaluation, by which we mean the language that governments use to describe culture and which arts organisations and artists are encouraged to use in order to describe what they do to governments, we think that that language is flawed. In fact, we would go further than that, <clears throat> and we'd probably say it's toxic. Um, we're humanities scholars, so we spend a lot of our time <laughs> with language and looking at language. And when we looked at this language, um, we 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 just had a an extremely adverse reaction. It it doesn't mean very much. The the key terms are a mess. Um, the, the the semantic sense is poor. Um, it's very difficult if you're looking at any kind of policy document or any kind of evaluative document, unless you already know the context, you already know what's being talked about. It's actually very difficult to know what's going on. So it's, it's really crap language. Um, and that is a problem in itself. You're not you're not going to kind of solve that problem by losing by using the crapper language better, because it's just going to be a sort of betting language um so so that's that sort of has to be acknowledged i think and that's you know that's we put that on the table for people to have a think about um the practical way forward is that we realized um sort of again sort of in the middle of the project that arts and culture weren't the only sector grappling with this problem and we became aware um of uh some reporting frameworks uh, that we're using uh, an alternative approach. And we talk about two of them in the book. We talk about sustainability reporting and integrated reporting, and they're, they're very closely allied, those two frameworks. Um, and they came out of, well, two uh, situations, really. One was climate change and the need for um, uh, corporations to report on and take responsibility for what economists used to call externalities, um, pollution and uh, resource use. Um, and the other is um, South Africa and the racial divide that existed when apartheid collapsed. Um, that meant that there had to be a redistribution in that country of um, stakeholder reward in terms of the corporations that were then operating in that 
in that, in that state. Um, so integrated reporting took took root there as a way of um, being fairer to all stakeholders within a value situation. So we we think that those two frameworks, and we we give a fairly detailed summary of both of them in the book, um, are um, points of hope for arts and culture, um, and possibly points of application as well, when we're thinking about how we can use the methods that we do have to have a more meaningful conversation about the value of what it is we do. And we think there's a direct connection between being able to represent benefits that your company might provide for the environment, uh, so things that are intangible, things that are obviously a good idea but can't be represented on, you know, traditional balance sheets, um, and arts and culture that has intangible benefits, things that can't be seen and represented so clearly um, on balance sheets. And so we think that the connection between those two things means that it might be a really useful way forward for, for talking about um, those kinds of intangible forms of value in a more concrete way that's visible to to stakeholders mm. and using metrics better because th- these are approaches that that still use numbers they just use them in a different way. Yeah, I mean the, the book does a really good job actually of striking the balance between and this is the sort of second half of the book between that critical engagement, the you know insistence on bringing narrative into um, how we think about doing things like evaluation and, and reporting better, but but also being quite practical as well. I, I suppose the kind of, the question that comes from that set of um, alternative ways of thinking through value is the extent to which you're maybe hopeful of it, of it sticking. And I know towards the end of the book, you, you kind of give this story about speaking to a, a public servant who kind of says, well, uh, you know, we've, talked enough about this <laughs> you know what why do we have to to carry on talking about it but at the same time decisions have to be made you know the, the kind of the struggle over value is is ongoing particularly um i know you know this might not be the same in australia but obviously in the uk uh, there are lots of cuts to things in america you know there are kind of various threats to um public education and uh, cultural funding so so i wonder about the extent to which you're sort of hopeful that this um both intellectual critique and set of practical guidance will will kind of stick um for policymakers or arts organizations i think it is we're in a dangerous moment right so if we think about the work that's been done around the notion of value for culture around the world from the gifts to the muse um gifts of the muse report in the us through to the ahrc cultural value project there in the UK, um, there is there's been a lot of work done on this on this question, and it's moved the debate, you know, a ways, but not where it needs to go yet to be of practical benefit for arts and cultural organisations on the ground. And what I'm seeing is a kind of now resistance to continue sticking with that problem because because of the way that not only you know our research projects and um our and a strategic report or a strategic um plans research phase has a timeline to it you know a beginning middle and an end um and because of you know years just turn on and on and on in culture from one from one year to the next from one program of activities to the next so quickly um but also because we out cognitively we get tired of an issue and where we are always looking for the next issue and I think for all of those reasons the problem of culture's value might slip away from us just as we are about to be able to make a real 
a real intervention into it, you know, um, nationally and internationally because people are thinking, well, what's the next big thing? And so I take a, I take some advice from Donna Haraway and her book, um, you know, Staying with the Trouble to, to suggest that maybe we actually have to languish in uncomfortableness stick with these problems even if we haven't solved them completely within a within a three-year project um, and keep going with this issue and refuse to kind of let it let it be let these advances be buried under the, t- the tidal wave of the next big thing and to give a practical example of that and one that we don't talk about in the book because we're not really qualified to do it um, is Australian indigenous culture um, and that's an extremely important part of the life of this nation and and it can't be metricized away <laughs> it's it's a long-standing historical problem with many social and political implications um, and it, it can't be fixed closed inverted commas you, you you have to sort of get to know it and you have to live with it and you have to bring it into into your cultural life and it has to be addressed in an ongoing way over time that's a really kind of wonderful sort of concluding point to to the book and it sort of strikes me actually you know are, are you going to do more work in that direction because obviously this is a a live issue in australia but you know it's a live issue in uh, lots of other places as well or is it a matter of you know I suppose, kind of um, thinking beyond um, the project and, and moving on in, in completely diff- different directions. I know, Tolly, you mentioned, you know, the kind of um, you do something for three years, you know, this you know struggle is, is ongoing, um, but also there is the kind of um, the system of applying for grants and projects and stuff like that. So it'd be interesting to hear where, where you go next and, you know, possible future book projects as well. Hmm. Um. Well, I think it would be true to say now that we feel having done this work, <clears throat> which is, you know, over the last five years and the book and some of the articles as well, that we now feel that we're part of a larger conversation um, and that some of the problems that have to do with value in arts and culture need to take their place um, in a discussion about con- contemporary social structures and political structures and that that relationship isn't just a supervenient one um you know where arts and culture are sort of the little bit that comes out of the bottom of the slot machine um it's a very important conversation between what is happening in the arts and culture sector and what is happening everywhere else and we are having some of those uh, discussions now and they're very illuminating i think for both both parties in terms of what we can do dave going forward i think the best one of the most interesting things that we can bring to this is a focus on language and languages. Um, that's something that we're very sensitive to as humanities scholars, and it's often one that doesn't really get much consideration. Um, language is assumed to sort of be transparent and to some extent unproblematic, um, and uh, in comparison with the quantitative data, which is assumed to be kind of very precise and very scientific and you know bound by all sorts of rules. Um, and the more we look at it, the more we are convinced that the language structures that are used to describe things that are used, for example, in peer evaluation processes, 
um, that that language needs to be scrutinized and understood for what it is if if we're going to really get to grips with what is really going on in the value space. So we have um, hopefully some interesting relationships with peak bodies being developed and arts funders um, uh, to let us into that space of judgment so that we can um, bring some of our ideas to bear on the policy process of assessment and and uh, awarding of grants. And we're also thinking about how it is that um, the arts organisations might get cut through in talking about their value. So, you know, a few years ago, Julian and I went off to the Science Communicators Conference and we heard, you know, someone talking about how 97% of scientists think that climate change is the biggest, you know, catastrophe facing human culture today and yet there's still no meaningful action to be done there that's about a big as, as big a number as you can get right 97 percent it's a huge number and yet there's no meaningful action so there's something that happens in between evidence and action that 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 stops that stops the process from from having the, the, the full effects that it should and we want to think about what might it be that gets cut through and what gets cut through for different kinds of um, sectors of, of the community. So mm-hmm. what gets cut through for us, we're, we're analysing, you know, we're kind of taking it apart and then thinking what gets cut through for governments because it's clear that this learning to speak the language of government that um, arts organisations have been trained to do for at least the last 30, 40 years has re- resulted in a dead end for language, for the terminology that we use, the vocabularies that we use to discuss what we do and for the whole notion of value itself. It has just been evacuated of meaning and we need to restore it. Mm. And it hasn't worked. It has not worked.